This podcast originally aired in 2013. This is the Nature Pastcast, each month raiding nature's archive and looking at key moments in science. In this show, we travel back to the 1940s. Nature, Saturday, July 18th, 1942. 1942 is one of the darkest periods of the Second World War for Britain. The war with Germany is still ongoing. There's, There's bombing, there's the Blitz. Great destruction. My name's John Agar. I'm a historian of science at University College London, and I'm fascinated by how science fitted in with the wider world in the 20th century. Wars in general are very important for science because they, they, they call for new weapons, they call for new defences, and scientists as experts are brought into that process. And in the 20th century, which was a century of global conflict, the scientists were brought into that process like never before. And the Second World War, I think, is particularly crucial because during the First World War, the plenty of scientists were involved, but many people felt that they weren't used effectively. And there's a determination in the Second World War to change that. And you can see that coming out in how nature covers the Second World War. Page 65. Scientific men in wartime. From the outbreak of war in 1939, and indeed for a long time previously, it was obvious that the knowledge possessed by scientific men and engineers would be of decisive importance in the coming struggle. It's fascinating reading nature in the Second World War. One of the first things you notice when you see them on the shelves is that the the volumes for 1942, 1943 are half the size of the the pre-war and post-war volumes. That's because people are doing war work. Nature stays at St Martin's Lane in the centre of London throughout the Second World War and they do so because they are convinced that science depends on communication and that carrying on. Even though people have to travel through blacked out areas, even sitting on a train you can't read your scientific papers because you've got to keep the lights out and, and editorials in Nature complain about that. They also say it's essential the science to keep on talking, which is why you have Lawrence Bragg talking at the Royal Institution in 1942 in the centre of London. Page 75. A lecture at the Royal Institution by Sir Lawrence Bragg. While scientific men of all kinds have been called upon to use their skill and knowledge for the nation's service in the present... Bragg is a very eminent scientist in his own right. It's interesting because he can say some things but not other things. Physicists are now being used to develop and use all the lighter apparatus of war, the instruments for communication, for detection of aircraft and submarines, and for direction of our batteries. They are increasingly applying their analytical technique to operational research into the most effective way of using our weapons. He's reflecting on the fact that physicists are a crucial resource for, for, for war. And we know in retrospect what they're doing We know that they're involved in radar, which is top secret. We know that that some of them are 
involved in the atomic bomb project as well. But of course he cannot say that. But what he can say is talk in generalities about just how important physicists are. I'm John Westcott, and um, when war broke out, I was 18. When this uh, offer came round of a job as a research establishment to the south of England, I uh, went straight up to the apprentice department and asked them, what about this job? And they said, oh, we can't tell you, it's secret. (laughs) But I I thought, well, I think that's perhaps a a fairly good gamble. If If it's secret, there must be something fairly interesting. So I agreed to take it. And that's how come I became part of this little unit of three people that were literally designing radar sets. And that, that was great. That was a great experience. The image of the radar we have is one of those round screens with a little line that goes around and little beeps and little spots appearing. Well, that's the kind of system that was developed so that someone on the ground could have an overview of what was in the air. You use electromagnetic waves, radio waves, and by measuring the time between emitting a pulse and receiving it back again from an object that's far away, you can determine where it is, how far away it is, how high up it is. And therefore it gives you a new way of seeing. In effect, before the war, they they were relying on uh, listening to find out where people are. And of course, trying to spot where things are by sound is a, is a very imprecise thing. What physicists brought to radar development was new techniques, new ideas, and particularly using shorter wavelengths. Now, wavelengths are crucial with radar because the size of the object you're spotting roughly correlates to the size of the radio wave. Now, early radar had very long waves, so you could not spot small objects like, say, a U-boat conning tower or an aircraft very well. And what the physicists were able to do were to find new techniques for generating and measuring and and, uh, handling short wavelength radio waves in radar. Well, this is a... um, What you're not supposed to do a record of what we were doing. This is a block diagram of all the details of the uh, radar set. I don't know how I got away with it. (laughs) Here are some accuracy tests. In fact, the the test we used to do was on the the cathedral at um, the nearest place. It it had a tower with four spikes, and we could discriminate these four spikes. (laughs) So it was that good great feature about it was that instead of being a standard sort of 10 centimetre wavelength, it was a 3 centimetre wavelength, which meant that it was far more discriminatory. And that was absolutely crucial to defend, for example, Britain in the Battle of Britain. It was crucial to um, the success of the war against the U-boats. It's up there with, for example, code breaking as one of the technical innovations and developments that turns the war in the Allies' direction.
there's a there's a story, an anecdote, and I'm not too sure how true it is, but it goes like this: the the success of the British in shooting down German bombers was accredited to the sharpened eyesight caused by a forced diet of carrots. Now, it's a wonderful story, and it was, it was a story that circulated at the time. I think it tells you that people knew something was up. Um, it may have been spread as a useful, if implausible, cover story for radar. Um, and I suppose the other thing it tells us about is food. One of the things that you notice if you look through the wartime issues of nature is just how often there are editorials and papers about nutrition. Page 92. Parsley is a rich source of vitamin C. Parsley can be grown by anyone with a garden or allotment. It is not unsightly as an edging to a flower border. If the population could be induced to grow more parsley and include it in their diet, it would be of great benefit to their health and also a wise step to take. If there were a shortage of potatoes, parsley would act as a valuable source of vitamin C. It's important because vitamins lead to healthy bodies, healthy bodies lead to harder work, people having to work immense amounts of overtime in factories. It was important to feed people well. One of the best ways to use it is to make parsley lemonade in the following simple way. Take one ounce of picked leaves and press down in a jug. Pour onto this half a pint. The access that one had to foods was um, pretty restricted, really. Um, left one ra- rather deficient, really, in, well, particularly in vegetables and things of that sort. I can remember during the war once being driven to eating grass. <laughs> yes, horrible, actually. <laughs> Page 75. In the war, the pure scientist has to join the applied scientists and become a technician. And for the university scientist in particular, this has meant a change of outlook and of occupation of a very revolutionary kind. Yes, in the war, the pure scientist has to join the applied scientists and become a technician. Absolutely on the nail. Uh, That's exactly how it was. Although one uh, had an an urge to be a purist, if you like, it was quite impossible under conditions of the war. You you inevitably had to be involved with the technicalities of the thing. And uh, in our case, even to the extent of uh, supervising the manufacture of the resultant product, and that wasn't really our cup of tea. We were good at science, but we weren't terribly good at manufacturing. <laughs> You'd have difficulty explaining why you wanted some peculiar thing, because uh, it was so secret. Then the secrecy really was, um, well, overwhelming, you might say. But that's the wartime thing, I think. I, I, I'm not grumbling. <laughs> it was a very good experience. In 1945, when the war ends, these secrets can come out. So... Radar is revealed in all its intricacies and its effectiveness. And, of course, the the nuclear physics and everything that went into the atomic bomb. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, the representative of the German High Command 
signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Force. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the King. When the war ends, you have a generation of young scientists who for five years, you know, a really important period of their lives, have been working closely with the government, closely with military personnel, closely with industry. And they take that knowledge, that ambition, and those contacts, and they use that to change the sciences in the post-war period. So the early development of of electronic stored program computers comes out of this, so the computer age. Another science that I'm particularly interested in is radio astronomy. During the Second World War, radar scientists spotted all kinds of strange signals that they knew weren't to do with um, aircraft. turns out they're to do with all kinds of astronomical phenomena. So at the time they were noting this and thinking there's, a, there's an interesting branch of astronomy that could be could be developed there. And yet, as soon as the war ends, teams of physicists at Cambridge and at Manchester call up their mates in the, in the military, say, have you got any war surplus, radar equipment, can I use it? Yeah, that's what's brought in to places like Jodrell Bank and at Cambridge. And that's used to launch radio astronomy in Britain, creating the sciences of the post-war period. I suppose that was the exceptional thing about wartime, that there were no constraints of uh, limitation of finance or anything of that sort. It was uh, straight ahead regardless, which we certainly did with gusto. It was a great time to be involved with it, really. (laughs) I think there's no doubt about that. One thing has been clear. It has been of immense advantage to Great Britain in this struggle to have a reservoir of scientific researchers on which to draw. It will be found that our men of science have played no small part at more than one critical time. You've been listening to The Nature Pastcast, produced by Charlotte Stoddart and with contributions from historian John Agar and scientist John Westcott, who, after his wartime work on radar, established the new field of control systems at Imperial College London. The sound effects were from freesound.org. Full credits on our website, nature.com slash nature slash podcast. Next month, we fast forward to the 1970s and a story of blockbuster drugs from the early days of biotechnology.